Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. A lot of times you get quicker results if you really just change the entire, you know, the entire thing up and change the photo, even just change the product that you're showing. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to take advantage of and outlive a trend, the advantages of buying ads in traditional media, and how to work backwards to test an ad. Today, I'm joined by Megan Bush from Kapari Beauty. Kapari Beauty is passionate about products that make you look gorgeous with ingredients that make you feel great. And it was started in 2015 and based out of San Diego, California. Welcome, Megan. Thanks, Felix. Yes, yeah, so tell us a little bit more about Kapari Beauty and some of the popular products that you sell. Absolutely. So Kopari Beauty um, sells coconut oil-based beauty products. And our our hero product is our coconut melt, which is 100% organic coconut oil. So um, for those of you who've heard about coconut oil, it's got amazing multitasking properties, both for health and beauty. And what we've really done with, uh, with all of our products at Kopari is take coconut oil to the next level by adding all-natural um, ingredients that really just boost those benefits of coconut oil for for beauty purposes. Awesome. So where did this idea come from? Like how did how did you and the team I guess start going down this avenue? Yeah, so actually, it's kind of a funny story. Um, uh, Kopari has four founders, and uh, the founders basically all came up with a similar concept for coconut oil um, beauty company, and and came to a to a common friend uh, with with the same idea at the at within like a week of each other, and um, that that common thread, you know, common friend introduced in, introduced everyone to each other, and they kind of said, you know what, this is so weird that we all had this idea at the same time. Why don't we all join forces and and, and launch a, a brand out of it. Yeah, it's funny that all the founders came up with the idea at the same time. So n- once they all met and decided that this was a great idea, we all came up with this idea, what were the first steps? How do you begin to take this idea? Maybe we'll start there. Like, What was the idea itself? Like, was it just to create, well, you can explain to me, what was the idea when you when they all came together? What was the idea that they wanted to pursue? Well, they definitely all wanted to use coconut oil to some degree into um, and use it into different beauty products. So uh, one of the founders wanted to create, um, you know, hair care. One of them wanted to create skin care. Um, and they all had kind of thought we would, they would, you know, coconut oil is so amazing, both for hair care and skin care and, and body care. So the idea was uh, to kind of start with one product and really just uh, ramp up with with more product lines as it, as the business got rolling. Um, so that that's sort of why it's kind of confusing as to who really came up with the idea or how did we really start with this. Um, but once the idea was was brought up by multiple people and everyone met each other and decided this is something we really wanted you know to start a business on, uh, then then it became time to really just start um, looking out for. Uh, some some beauty labs actually. So they uh, interviewed a bunch of different beauty labs in, in the Southern California area. Um, found one that that they felt really comfortable with, and they started kind of just the product uh, the product development at that point. 
Um, very quickly, uh, you know, while while the product was being developed, they had a lot of conversation about, you know, how are we really going to launch this brand? And they definitely talked a lot about whether they were going to go into distribution through salons and spas, whether they were going to go straight into stores or whether they were just going to focus online. Um, at that point, when they decided that they really wanted to test the market um, in the direct consumer channel. And that's when I got brought into the company. Um, so they gave me a call. I had worked with one of the founders years ago on a couple different brands that he had. Um, and I was working for an e-commerce agency and he called me up and said, you know, you got to come back. <laughs> we need your help. Or we, need, we need you to help us sell coconut oil based beauty online. So I mean, I'm assuming you already had like, you know, a stable job and everything. Someone calls you up and says, let's, um, we want you to join, uh, you know, a new company, a startup. What made you attracted to, to the opportunity? Well, I was working for an e-commerce agency, which I absolutely loved. But when I, when the opportunity kind of fell in my lap, there was two things that really drove me to take the job. Um, number one, um, the guy who called me, James Brennan, I've worked for him for a few different companies that he's had. And he's always had a knack for, you know, spying trends and really doing well with the businesses that he starts. I've been lucky enough to see him be successful and, and work with him in, in a lot of those successes. Um, so number one, him, you know, the fact that he was putting this together, I thought that's a, a great, <laughs> that's a great brand that I should be mm -hmm. a part of just due to the fact that he's involved himself with it. Um, and number two, you know, working for different agencies, I really, um, I love digital marketing. I've been doing it for my entire career. And I really wanted to work in-house for one brand to kind of get a full circle view of what of, of what the digital marketing really entails. So when working for agencies, you're always only seeing a piece of the business and never full circle exactly what's going on as far as even just inventory management and fulfillment services and kind of how these different um, offline channels really affect the online sales. Uh, so that was really attractive to me. And I thought that's that's definitely something that I could learn from. And so that was ultimately why I decided to join the company. Mm, so like you're mentioning before, all of the founders wanted to do something with coconut oil. You you saw that that the, that these founders that were starting a business had eye and understood or ready to to take on opportunities in the marketplace. Talk us a little bit more about this. What do you what did they see in the market that made them decide that this was the direction to go? And what did they see about coconut oil specifically? Um, coconut oil, it's been a very buzzworthy trend for the past couple of years. Um, I, I had personally, when they called me up, you know, a couple years ago, I had personally already heard of it and I had been using it, um, just as a body moisturizer. I'd use it for something called oil pulling. And it's this, it's this amazing ingredient that you can really use for, you can use for cooking, you can use it for your hair, your skin, your, your body, et cetera. There's just, there's a lot of buzz around it, especially in like the health and, and beauty space. Um, if you're kind of follow any blogs or any, you know, influencers in, in social media, everyone seems to be talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I think what they found in, was a void in the space because a lot of people, so you can buy a jar of coconut oil in a grocery store. Um, and basically what they, and all the founders were experiencing, and I think a lot of people out there were experiencing that you go and you buy this jar of coconut oil on the grocery store shelves, you take it home, you start cooking with it, then you realize what an amazing moisturizer it is and you take it into your bathroom and you, you know, use it as a moisturizer and then you take it, you know, uh, and you oil pull with it and then you take it back to the kitchen and you cook with it and it starts to get a little bit like 
confusing um, what this product is actually for. Is it a beauty product? Is it a health product? What are you actually doing with this? And so uh, a lot of people have been focused on on the be- or on the, the health aspects of coconut oil. And it seems as though there was a, uh, a void in the market to really talk about the actual beauty aspects of coconut oil. Mm. And how can we take this, this amazing ingredient and actually make it easier to use as a body moisturizer and make it easier to use as a skin, um, as a hair mask and make it easier to use as a flyaway tamer and as a makeup remover and kind of all these amazing uses that you can you can do with coconut oil how can we really amplify those benefits um, by incorporating complementary ingredients and also just make it a much more enjoyable experience and put it in beautiful packaging and really uh, buy into this kind of uh, tropical lifestyle that we've created that makes sense that the, they recognized that there was a lot of talk about the health aspects, but then there was this this gap that where there wasn't that much focus on the beauty angle of coconut oil. But how did they know that it was the beauty angle that was going to be the one that was the, I guess, the best business to build on? I think just the just the pure makeup of coconut oil in general. I mean, it's it's not just like uh, a product that makes you beautiful. It actually is. It's its core is has this lauric acid, which is something that's found in almost no ingredient um, in nature. And so if you just like kind of study the chemistry of the coconut oil molecules, it's something that just doesn't really exist. And I think they they realize that there's something unique about this and they're able to, you know, the oils are very popular in beauty right now. And coconut oil is something that's just, it's so universal. Everybody's heard of coconut. Everybody recognizes what coconut is, whether it be the smell or the taste or, the, or, or whatever. Um, so they knew that it had, you know, mass potential to really go out and, um, and get the attention of a lot of people. I think that, uh, you know, for, for women, uh, having something that's multitasking and something that they're able to use for multiple uses is so beneficial because, I mean, if you look at most girls' beauty counters, they have so many products. And so to have something that's sitting on that that counter of your bathroom that's not only beautiful in the jar, but also something that can be applied to multiple areas like your hair, your face, your body, et cetera, it just, it just makes so much sense. Um, it simplifies things. It makes your life a little bit easier, um, especially when you're traveling and you want to throw something in your bag. You don't have to pack all these different products for all these different uses. You can really take this one core product and use it for so many different things. And I think that was really attractive to them. Mm. Now, do you think it's possible to reverse engineer this, this, I guess, this process that, that the founders went through where they're able to identify a rising trend and then finding a new way to kind of package it and bring it to, to market? That's a great question. Um, reverse engineering the process. I would say that they, again, I, I wish I could give more more insight into that. I think that, you know, just knowing, I think it's, a, you have to kind of just pay attention, mm-hmm. <laughs> as simple as that sounds. But I think paying attention and really recognizing when there's, you know, if you hear something repeatedly, um, you're paying attention to what the bloggers are saying, to what the influencers are saying, and then you're having... I, I wish I could answer better that, but I'm not really sure how I would do yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense that you want to pay attention to kind of what the influencers, the blogs, what they're talking about. Uh, now, did the founders themselves, did they have experience in the beauty space? Like how much experience do they have to, to create a product like this? Yeah, so um, the, one of the founders and the CEO, Bryce Goldman, he actually um, was, you know, kind of born and raised into the beauty into the beauty space. His uh, He has a family uh, beauty distribution s- store, 
um, with spas and salons in them. So he's been familiar with all like with beauty products. So I think that's been really helpful because he's been kind of watching um, coconut oil and different trends within the beauty space for years. And so and and waiting for someone to come out with this really great product that would that would highlight this that would highlight coconut oil. Um, and when nothing came, I think that's where he really saw his opportunity to, to build a brand around it. Mm. Now, how do you, how do you, uh, I guess, manage a, a product, a brand like this, that is a, you know, I guess a trendy product, like you were mentioning before, it's became, become very popular most in more recent years. And it's, it only seems to be getting more and more popular, but is there a point where it's going to taper off? Like how do you, how do you kind of manage that potential outcome? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it's certainly something that we've discussed internally. But I truly believe that if a product has the efficacy, if it works, if it's just a very good product and a good brand, um, I think it outlives all of the hype and, and kind of buzz that's generated around it. And that's another reason why we're so focused on taking this pro this this ingredient and and adding other ingredients that definitely improve the efficacy of it and mm. the performance of it so that it's not just one ingredient and it's not just, you know, a fad or a hype. It's something that's going to live on forever because it truly is that amazing. It's not something that is ever going to go away. It's actually been used um, for beauty and health, you know, for beauty and health for centuries um, in, in different cultures. And I think it's just recently becoming popular in the United States, but I actually think it's it's been quite popular um, in Asia for for a long time. Yeah, I think this is a great example of using a trend to to essentially launch a product and to get that visibility. But at the end of the day, you still need to have a product that is going to work. Like you're saying, needs to have efficacy, needs to actually be a product that has value. You can't just ride the trend and kind of be empty once the people use a product that actually has to be effective. And I think that's a great example of, or this is a great example of a product that it has been able to take advantage of a trend, but then of course deliver the value at the end of the day so that you don't die with the trend if it ever does kind of you know taper off. So you mentioned that the, the one of the first steps that the founders had to take was to identify and start working with a beauty lab. Talk to, uh, talk to us a little bit more about this. What is it? What is a beauty lab? A beauty lab is someone, I mean, it basically they're, they're the ones coming up with all of the formulas and making sure that they're safe and they know, they know what ingredients to be using to, to create the products that, that you're looking to create. Um, so we started speaking with a few different beauty labs um, and, and you, it's essentially, you know, an interview process, just like with any vendor you have and you, you speak with the team and you determine um, who kind of understands the vision that you're trying to set forth and who um, can come up with the best concepts for, for your team. Mm-hmm. And how, do, how does the interview process work? How did, you, how did the team identify which beauty lab to go with? So I wasn't a part of that of that um, process. I actually came on after they had already selected the main beauty lab that they wanted to work with. Um, but I know that they, they definitely sat down and met with um, multiple labs. I think that being in Southern California is kind of a blessing because there are multiple labs that we were able to mm-hmm. kind of just drive up and meet with and sit down with and discuss. And I think it's a matter of, you know, not only uh, who you feel really understands the vision of the brand and of the company, but also someone who, you know, is willing to take risk and push, push limits as far as what they want to do, um, chemically speaking to the product. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, what does the, uh, the beauty lab deliver to, to, to its client? Uh, so the beauty lab will, um, come up, 
when we're looking to launch new products or when we're working on formulating new um, new products, we'll work with them um, to to actually create those formulations and to actually um, you know piece together what what ingredients need to go into that product. And then once we decide on okay, this product is done and we've completed the process and we sign off on the on the the end product, then they'll actually go in and actually uh, manufacture the product for us. Very cool. So do you, do, are they able to handhold a client through this process or do you need to have some kind of background or expertise in beauty before working with a beauty lab? That's a really great question. And I think that one of the, one of the perks of working with, um, with at least the lab that we're working with is that their main focus um, is to crack, actually create the product and make sure that it's safe and it's, you know, it's, it works for everyone. And our main focus is to really take their creation and or the creation that we've worked with them to to build and and market it. So they really want to focus on, you know, they want to take the heavy lifting out of it and make sure that the product um, you know, does what it's supposed to do and and works well and has a long shelf life and and do all of that homework. While our our focus is to really how are we going to communicate this um, to our customers and how are we going to get this product in our customers' hands and how are we going to, you know, make sure that it's, it's what they want and, and, and they love it. Awesome. So when they, when they called you in and you started to work with, uh, with, uh, the company, what did you, uh, start working on immediately? What was the, your main focus? So <laughs> the first week I started, it was, you know, m- far before we actually had product in stock to sell. Um, I knew coming in that I wanted to um, make sure the site was built on Shopify. That was the quickest and easiest decision that I made. Uh, just because I, I working for um, other e-commerce companies, I've seen kind of the pain of dealing with a lot of the backend stuff that you don't, just don't have to deal with on Shopify. I didn't really want to deal with PCI compliance. I didn't really want to deal with hosting or any of any of that headache. And I really just wanted to focus on marketing the product. Um, I had done enough research to know that that was going to be really easy just to do on Shopify. So that was a quick and easy decision. And it's kind of embarrassing, but I spent my first few days at work going through the entire Shopify app store at the time. Um, and not only using that as a tool to kind of, uh, decide, okay, what, what marketing channels should we really launch in? What's out there? What is there a pre-built integration for so that I don't have to go out and try to find, you know, a super expensive solution for it. So that was kind of my first order of business was to go out and, and basically build, um, a, a marketing plan that really just focused on what was, what already existed within the Shopify community. Yeah, I think this is a process that a lot of uh, new Shopify store owners go through is this to identify which apps, which what kind of plugins they should tack onto their site. Did you choose any apps right away? Do you remember which ones you chose? I think this is a, a, a point that maybe some entrepreneurs get stuck at, which is what do they need to, to get started? Yeah, um, so I think a couple of the apps I chose right away, uh, Yotpo for reviews. Uh, I saw so many stores were using it. I was familiar with the tool myself. So it seemed like if, if so many stores are already using it, maybe there's something here. <laughs> so let's not reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely used Yotpo. We used AdRoll for remarketing initially. Uh, definitely Google Analytics. I'm, I'm definitely an analytics junkie and having a free tool like Google Analytics is so helpful. So that was one of the tools we used. Um, initially, though, I mean, we don't, I don't think we have a ton, still use a ton of the tools that we used at the very beginning. Um, there was an app called uh, FOMO. Uh, I think it had a different name at the time, but now mm-hmm. it's called FOMO. Where it's basically a, 
uh, a, an order alert system so that there's a little pop-up that says, you know, so-and-so purchased your product in Oregon today or, or something like that. And I remember thinking at the very beginning, you know, being a brand new beauty company, um, there's so much competition in the beauty space and how are we really going to stand out? And once we, you know, create these amazing products and once we start our, our process for advertising and everything, I wanted to make sure our store was a place that people would come to and trust. And I wanted to build that trust through a variety of ways, but I wanted the store to look very professionally done. I didn't want it to look like something we just threw up, um, you know, quickly or haphazardly. And I wanted to make sure that customers knew that this was this was legitimate. So using that app FOMO was really helpful in the initial stages because people were able to see that other people were actually buying the product, and that really provided this um, this social proof that it's a legitimate site. Yeah, I think that that's a great idea too to provide that social proof to show that other people have are trusting this brand, and by having that, by having reviews like uh, like you mentioned before, installing software for 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 the review system, having all of that gives people that trust to to trust in a new brand, trust in a new site. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Like, what other what other I guess changes or what what kind of conscious decisions do you make with the the actual site itself to build trust when you when you have a brand new store, a brand new product? So beyond just the reviews and the and the order notification app, uh, I also made it a huge priority to to immediately start A/B testing on the store. That's actually where um, a bulk of my experience has come from was conversion rate optimization. Um, and I knew that going into this with a brand new product with brand new packaging, you know, it was a, it's a it's just brand new, and I knew that it was going to be very difficult to determine what exactly about our product is going to resonate with people. So immediately, I actually um, signed up for an optimize the account and started A/B testing on the website. And the one of the first things uh, we actually ran was testing product descriptions. So we had spent a bunch of time really focusing on on our brand and our brand voice and how we wanted to describe these products, and ultimately we received so much feedback from just friends and family that were, you know, concerned about the way we were explaining the products and talking about them. And they said, you know, your language is a little too fun. It's not quite functional. You know, we you need to be more descriptive of what, about what the product actually does. And so we obviously took that feedback and we didn't necessarily, you know, shift gears, but what we did was we started to create more, you know, more functional language and, and then AB tested the product descriptions on the website to really figure out what, what was resonating with people. And what we found is that people actually responded really well to the, to the more fun branded content that they did the very literal, you know, here's how you use this product information. I think it's a great lesson to be learned that when people, especially people that aren't necessarily your customers, you know, maybe friends or family, they have your best interests at heart, but they're not actually a lot of times that your target customers and they'll come along. Of course, everyone wants to help and give their, their advice on how they want you to, not how they want you to, but how they suggest you message the product, write the product descriptions. And you guys didn't just take that information information and run with it, you tested it out to see if it was actually going to work or not. I think that's a great, that's a great insight. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, with A-B testing, I think this is this is something that a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of store owners want to start doing, but you you need a good amount of traffic though, right? To, to get good use, to get, get, to get enough data to to make these uh, decisions or run these tests to make these decisions. Were you already getting a good amount of organic traffic already or was it through uh, paid traffic to, to get the, the, I guess, the, the, the influx of uh, data to, to get A-B testing? testing? We definitely were running paid traffic. So I think most store owners could, uh, can 
relate to the fact that you launch a store and you just, you can't just sit there and wait because mm-hmm. it very rarely, you know, picks up on its own unless you, unless you've started to build the buzz through a Kickstarter or something else. We didn't really have that. We didn't have any huge piece of press that came out immediately. Um, we did do some sampling initially, uh, but we always knew that doing paid media was going to be very important, um, to getting our brand out there and to, to getting eyes on us. Uh, we also, uh, made traditional PR a very high priority in the beauty space. I think that it's very important that people see your brand in, um, traditional publications as well as, as, um, online publications just to give it that credibility. And we also did work with influencers. So I think between the sampling, the PR, the influencers and the paid media, which is a lot, uh, that's where we started to really see, uh, the brand pick up speed and the traffic pick up. And that's when we were able to really, really test the market like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing you had mentioned to to me, I think offline in, in an email was about how you were trying so many different things and you weren't exactly sure why things weren't picking up right away until it all came together through all these different efforts over time, kind of adding up to, to a point where people started recognizing the brand from multiple touch points. Talk a little bit more about this. Like, How did that come about? How did, how, I guess how did that realization come about that you need to hit them on all these different kind of channels? Yeah. So I think, and, you know, initially, uh, we had, as with any product, you know, you hear all these different stories about, Oh, we just really focused on influencers. Oh, we just really focused on traditional PR and everyone sort of has their niche channel. And I think, um, you know, we, we kind of started slowly with a bunch of different channels and, and nothing really took off on its own. Uh, so while we were, you know, we were getting a few traditional PR pieces and we were, you know, going out to influencers and we would get them, we would pay them to post and we never really saw a big influx. Nothing really happened. Um, and then we started running, um, paid advertising and, and again, things just started very slowly. And I think one of the challenges with the paid advertisement is that we were going and working with people who are highly experienced in doing, um, you know, paid advertising. And, and again, just like those, you know, friends and family who, who, said that maybe our, our product descriptions weren't good enough. We were experiencing the same struggles with these, with these very experienced paid advertisers where they were saying, you know, your product just doesn't resonate. You know, you need to be more literal. You need to be more specific. You need to, your product's too confusing. And, you know, the feedback basically was always kind of blamed on this product. And what I learned was that, you know, when I looked at the ads that they were running, it was very much, you know, talking about the free shipping opportunity and the best deal and, all these different, you know, benefits to the products that just weren't really leading with what it was, which is coconut oil is amazing for you. We've built an amazing brand around it. We have amazing imagery that goes with that. We know with our products, they're in beautiful packaging. And I feel like they just weren't really, they didn't trust the brand message and the brand um, imagery enough to lead with that. They were leading with the free shipping message, which is best practice, but it just wasn't working for us. Um, so once I heard a few too many times how our product just wasn't really going to be able to be sold online and we needed to try to do it in stores, I just refused to believe it. Um, we brought the paid advertising in house and I basically spent, you know, day and night, (laughs) um, setting up ads and changing up the audiences and, and switching up the, the content and really testing the messaging that way. And over time, week over week, I saw it start to slowly ramp up. And in the meantime, we were also testing very, you know, intermittently 
different influencers. We were getting very small press pieces. And then all of a sudden, we just saw this kind of spiral effect where all of the efforts started rolling together and people started commenting on the paid advertisement that, oh, I saw this product on, you know, this this influencer's Instagram or, oh, I read about this product on this particular blog. And that was all this, that's when it kind of clicked that, wow, these products just, or these, these mediums don't work in silo. They all work together. And you kind of need to have multiple touch points in order to really convince someone that your brand is legitimate and that they should be buying from you. Mm, so all these channels, it, it makes sense that you want to touch them on all these different uh, points, all these all these different uh, mediums. But of course, this takes a ton of time. It sounds like you, you devote a ton of time to this, lots of uh, effort, and of course, lots of capital as well. How did you how did you manage all of this? Like, do you remember how much how long it took, or if you can share like, how much budget it took early on before you started seeing this traction? It definitely. Um, gosh, I think from the time we took things, you know, kind of took back control of, of the, the paid media and and some of the, the influencer stuff. I think that it, I would say before, I remember sitting down exactly 30 days after I started and kind of showing, you know, showing the founders, okay, here's, here's what's happening. Here's what happened the first week. And here's what's happening in week four. And see how, while we're not necessarily, you know, crushing it, um, we are seeing a really, you know, upward trend of our, our, return on ad spend. And we're really seeing this ROI very slowly creep in. And they kind of looked at me like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. And then um, basically, I would say two weeks after that, things really started to take off. And and they realized, wow, this is okay, all this stuff is working in conjunction and working together. So it took a while, it took um, a lot of budget, and it took about six weeks. But what my recommendation would be for anybody who's testing this out is to really time it out so that all of these different efforts are hitting at the same time. And that was the key. And honestly, I don't think anyone really realized how important that was. At least I didn't because I thought, I thought we would test the different channels, the different mediums and say, okay, influencers, we tested this this month and we saw this return, you know, traditional PR, we tested this this month and we saw this return and paid advertising, same thing. Um, And it wasn't until we, actually did it all at once that they all sort of helped each other and things really took off. So my best advice, especially on a limited budget is to really, um, make sure that everything's hitting at the same time. I mean, even the same day would be amazing. I know that's easier said than done. Uh, but just really like honing in and making sure that you, you can see your, your brand in multiple touch points, um, at the same time, as opposed to kind of testing each channel individually. And so for, for you, you would recommend, I guess I think this probably varies from product, product, industry, industry, but for you and your experience, you would rather, you know, spend, uh, split up a budget in half and, and, de- and devote it to multiple channels than, than doubling down on just one channel, hit that same potential customer twice. Is that correct from that, from that you'd rather split it up in two different channels than hit them twice from the same channel? I really would. I, I would. I think that it's, I mean, especially in beauty, just because it's, it's so highly competitive and there are so many products out there. I think for women, um, who are, you know, so in tune with advertising, they're, they're seeing it everywhere and, and they're out looking for their new products and they're, they're so inundated with so many different things that I think it's really important for women that they're seeing your brand in multiple touch points. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So I think one thing that you mentioned earlier about how a lot of these uh, agencies that you're working with were 
giving you essentially benefits that could really be applied to any brand, any product, because things like free shipping, things like, uh, you know, I guess uh, discounts, like all these things can be applied to any brand, any product. You recognize that you can't lead with that because it doesn't talk much about the brand, about the brand and the product's benefits directly. Now, this this testing process that you went through to understand what kind of messaging to create, talk to us about this. I think there's something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is to how can they speak about their brand, speak to bring out the benefits of their product in a, in a clearer way. How would someone even begin to go down this process of identifying how to message their products? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think for most new brands, you know, people don't just create products out of nowhere. They create products to solve a problem. And they create a product because they see a void in the space. And I think really highlighting um, how your product fills that void is just so important. Uh, I think that, again, no one's going to buy a product just because they get free shipping on it. That you have to convince them that they need the product in order for them to actually determine that they want to buy the product. And then the benefit is that they get the free shipping. That's not a reason to buy a product though. No one's going to do that. And I think that really differentiating yourself from the other products on the market and, and also just trusting your gut. If you, you know, really believe in your brand. And that was, that was one thing I just didn't see with a lot of the partners we work with early on is they didn't, they didn't buy into the brand. They thought, you know, we, we can sell anything and, and this is kind of the, the blueprint for it, but there's really not a blueprint for it. Um, different thing, you know, different benefits work with different products. And we, when we really double down on here's our brand, here's our brand messaging, and here are the benefits of our product. That's when people really resonated with that and, and decided to try the product. Um, so I think definitely take all of the feedback that you're getting from your friends and family or from, you know, your consumers or everyone, but take it with a grain of salt and don't shift gears just because, you know, your cousin told you that she doesn't like the color of your packaging. That's the worst possible thing you can do, um, especially if you're very passionate about the products that you're creating. Mm. Now, talk to us about tactically when you sit down to run a test, whether it be at the very beginning or even today, how do you think about it? How do you organize or how do you set up a, a test? Uh, that's a great question as well. So, <laughs> For me, uh, we have a lot of very opinionated people <laughs> at Kopari, a lot of people who are really passionate about the products and about how, you know, why do they love it? Um, and and the, the great part about our brand, but also one of the challenges that we have is that there are so many different um, benefits to the product. So it's multitasking, which is really great for some people. It's very, you know, it, it works very, very well and better than most other products, which is great for other people. Uh, some people just love the fact that it's a very natural product and they're not putting any chemicals in their body. So because of all this, what do you lead with? And that's just, that's been a big challenge for us over the past 15 months or so, um, is to figure out what, you know, what is, why are people actually buying this product? And, and of course it's probably a combination of the three, but what we did was when sitting down and really just kind of spitballing and talking about the hierarchy of our brand messaging. Um, that's when I sort of took things back and said, why are we, you know, why are we debating this? We could debate this at length. Let's just test it. And we definitely tested it on our website. We also tested it in our marketing and our advertising, just even swapping out the photos. You know, do we use a photo of the product sitting on a beach to really get people to feel like they're sitting on that beach when they use this product and smelling the coconut and everything? Or is it more, is it better to use the product or see the product when it's actually being applied onto someone's skin? Or is it better to look at it when it's actually in a studio that that can relate to more people and during the winter you know what what is the best creative and and how can we really get that out there and so that's that's been probably 
the most consistent, um, you know, tests that we've run along this entire process, both on the site, on the, on the digital advertising. And we're learning something new from that every day, even just, you know, how old should the model that we use be? Mm. Now, when you are running these, these tests uh, offsite, is it mostly done through Facebook ads? A lot of it is done through Facebook ads. We also run advertising on on Pinterest, on Google AdWords, um, definitely a lot of display advertising as well. Cool. So when you are running these these tests, you you make sure to only or tell us a little about this. Do you do you change just one element at a time, like just change the copy, just change the image, uh, or do you try to make multiple tweaks at one time? Uh, definitely a mixture of both. So I think that. Uh, if we're if we have a you know a really strong theory that we want to test about, we believe that people are buying you know our coconut milk because it's you know a multitasker or it's just because it's all natural with no parabens or sulfates or anything. Then we'll take the same imagery or video and we'll actually just change out the copy and really just test okay what is actually resonating here. Whereas sometimes you know I hate to you know as someone who's been testing for a long time. It's probably bad to say, but a lot of times you get quicker results if you really just change the entire, you know, the entire thing mm-hmm. up and change the photo, even just change the product that you're showing and kind of, you know, vastly different creative, um, and then work backwards into, okay, so that definitely performed, but why did it? Mm-hmm. And work back by then kind of switching out the copy and the imagery to kind of see narrow down what it was that actually, you know, resonated. I think it's a great point to work backwards to just blow it out the water and start with something brand new and then pull away the layers to determine what actually makes a difference. I think doing that is also a little bit more, sometimes can be more motivating too because sometimes it's a slog, right? To just change one thing at a time every single day, make one small tweak. Uh, so now when you do have an ad, a test ad out in the market, uh, how do you determine if it's a winner or, not, winner or not? How long do you wait and what are you looking at? So if you're using a tool, I mean, there are tools out there such as, like like I said, Optimizely or Dynamic Yield or the different tools for the on-site testing that they're going to tell you. Um, so they're running all the statistical analysis on the back end and they're going to say, you know, this is a 95% chance of actually being statistically um, better performing than its counterpart. Um, so that's a very, very, very helpful tool because it's it's doing all the heavy lifting for you. You don't necessarily have to, to put a lot of thought into um, what's going on. Um, whereas when you're doing it with advertising, there are tools that will help you and, and manage these tests for you, but uh, we're not currently using one that's actually going to say this is a clear winner, send all your traffic here. Uh, so it's really just a matter of not only uh, allowing you know enough time to kind of go by, usually we try not to let it go out for more than a, just a couple of weeks. And the thing with advertising is you get ad fatigue. So you can't really just find one winner and let it run for six months. It's not going to work. Uh, you're actually going to have to continue to just, that's why the testing process is just never finished. And you never see one ad that's just repeated for any brand. And they're always running multiple ads and multiple audiences to really see at what, you know, what's resonating at what time during what point in the funnel. And it's, it's, kind of a never-ending process, which can be a little daunting, but lucky for me, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so obviously a ongoing process that you once you determine a winner, it's not just, okay, this one won, and now we'll just move on to the next test. You actually want to make those changes in your, your messaging on your site, I guess, through all of your branding as well, I guess, depending on what you're testing. How do you manage that? How do you roll out a, a successful, if you determine a winner for a messaging, an image, something wins, how do you roll it out to the rest of, I guess, your assets? Yeah, that's, 
That's a, that's definitely a challenge. Um, especially as the team, like our internal team has been growing. It's, it's a lot more, it's a lot more difficult to actually, you know, let everyone know, by the way, this is the winner and this is what we've determined works better than the, and then the opposite. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, it's not just a matter of this works, A works better than B. It's also a matter of what else is going on in the market? What, what time of year is it? You know, what other op- advertising are we doing that could potentially be affecting this? So there is no real clear cut answer. But what we've done internally to try to, to combat that is to sit down. We actually sit down every other week and we just have a conversation about it. We say, you know, over the past two weeks, here's what's been working. We've seen this perform better than that. And we're actually working with the content creation team directly and saying, see this, see that. Now, um, as far as the digital marketing team, you know, we're very into numbers and, and analytics. And, and then the content creation team is essentially taking this um, and taking our recommendations and, and seeing, okay, if this worked, why don't we try to get more video that looks like this or more you know, photography that looks like this. And then they're taking, you know, our feedback and going out and getting new content to create that then we can go back and, and, and cycle through. Mm, I like that, that you work with the content team because it needs to, to change, right? You can't just let the content team run off without the analytics that, that you can provide to guide them on which direction to go. Uh, so you mentioned a couple products, uh, Optimizely, which is one I'm familiar with for, for your, your, I guess your onsite A-B testing. Talk to us a little more about this. What is, what does this software do and how do you use it? Uh, so a tool like Optimizely or Dynamic Yield or any testing tool that goes onto your website. So a lot of them, I mean, they all, I will admit, a lot of them are very similar. And what you do is essentially just install a line of code, uh, JavaScript onto your, your backend. And then you use the actual dashboard within the tool to create your tests. And it actually goes in and um, sits on top of your code. So it, it'll change, you know, the image or the text or the order or the design of the page directly on top of your actual page. So you're not making these changes in the back end of your website. You're actually doing it in their um, WYSIWYG editor through their dashboard. And then you're setting up the test. You're setting up who's actually going to uh, see this test, who's going to be included in the test, what your goals are. So, you know, nine times out of 10, our goal is always going to be um, which one increases revenue the most, which uh, variation increases the revenue the most. And then it's actually going to go in, you know, as soon as you start your test and auto divide your audience up. uh, Randomly to determine, you know, who gets to see what variation and then essentially calculate the the statistical significance of the results of the test. So which variation did generate the most revenue per visitor? And then uh, and how how likely is it that this isn't just due to chance and that this is actually a significant result and A is actually better than B? Mm. So can you talk to us a little bit about a, a change that you've made recently to the site that has had a, a big impact on the conversion rate? Yeah, sure. So we're always testing small things. Um, I would say, you know, we've just recently launched a new product line and uh, on our homepage banner, you know, we, the first thing that, you know, people see when they land on, on our homepage, uh, we were testing whether or not it's, it's better to have models or have products lined up. Uh, in that in that banner. So it's our, our new skincare line. And, you know, in beauty, you know, people want to see before they buy your skincare, they want to see a beautiful model with with very clear, beautiful, radiant skin um, who's using the product. And so we were testing out whether showing that that, you know, photo of, of a model who's actually using the product would perform better than just having the actual lineup of the product sitting next to it. And it's actually quite interesting. Um, so that's one, you know, we're constantly testing different 
merchandising like that and just seeing how people respond to it. Um, and then it's also really interesting when, when there might not be a big difference. Um, and it really makes you think, you know, why, you know, do we need to go out and get this really expensive photography of models when sometimes the products work just as well as the model shots? Mm. So a lot of time, I think, especially new store owners will rely or spend a lot of time focus on optimizing the ads themselves, the, the image, the copy, what product to show. Do you think that this is a, a, a better use of time or would you suggest that they focus more on the on-site conversion rate optimization that, that you're talking about? I think that depends on where they are as a business. I think that if you have enough traffic to your website, you should absolutely be prioritizing your on-site conversion rate because there's absolutely no sense in paying for traffic that's not going to buy anything. Uh, however, I do think, you know, especially even, you know, just launching Kopari. So I was so focused on conversion rate optimization and making sure that our site was optimized for purchase. Uh, and then we kind of were left in a sense at the very beginning that, how are we going to actually get people to the site? So you also, you, unfortunately, you kind of have to do both. I would say the priority should be your on-site conversion rate, just because, especially if you're paying for the traffic, you need to make sure that you're paying for traffic that's actually going to convert versus um, sending people, you know, paying for traffic that's going to come to the website and not know what to do or not not be convinced to buy the product. Mm. And now is there a threshold that you keep in mind uh, where you recommend people start shifting their focus from paying for, for traffic to now optimizing the, the conversion rate on the site? You know, I, I will say it's definitely, you definitely need traffic. Like you said, um, when you're working on site, you can't, you can't necessarily run a statistically significant test without, uh, without a certain, you know, threshold of traffic. And that I would say that traffic, I mean, People say that and I say that, but I also think we were a, we definitely ran tests before maybe we had enough traffic to really determine uh, you know statistical significance, but we still learn from that and still learn from that messaging. So while yes, you might need, I don't know, 50,000 visitors a month to actually determine, okay, this is this is a statistically significant and sound test that then we can then roll out to the rest of our company. I still think it's worth just testing and trying with a lower um, traffic number. Uh, you might not get that significance, but you will be able to gain some learnings about how people are responding to the website in different ways. Mm. Now, I think you mentioned earlier about how the, the the testing process is always ongoing because your customer changes, the I guess the attitude of the market changes, your product changes, your messaging changes. Now, do you ever go back and retest? I guess uh, I guess rerun an A/B test, if you, or do if you determine that something's a loser, something's a winner, you cut out that loser, and never return back to trying it out again. No, absolutely not. We definitely retest. And honestly, we retest most things, I will say. Uh, you know, for for example, when we initially launched and we had ran this test um, for that, that order notification app that we were running, and we found that it was, you know, statistically significant, it increased sales at the very beginning. And we, we thought it was amazing. It's so useful. And we stopped the test and we ran, you know, for everyone. And then, you know, we started to get a few more complaints about it. Like, oh, this is kind of annoying. This pop-up keeps coming up. I don't really like it. So we retested it um, a few months later. And what we found was that it was so important to have that validation early on when so few people had seen and heard of our brand. And, you know, maybe they saw an ad and they came to our site, but they didn't, weren't familiar with the brand. They'd never heard of us before. And they really needed that social proof. 
then as we got a little bit bigger and as people started seeing our brand in multiple places and realizing that we were a legitimate source and we could, you know, we got really great write-ups in a lot of, you know, traditional press, uh, all of a sudden they didn't need that social proof anymore and, mm-hmm. it, and it became annoying to them. So by retesting that, we learned that we didn't really need that anymore. Um, so that's one very good example of where we did retest and found completely different results. And I think it makes sense too. Uh, but I'm always encouraging the team to retest things that we've already tested in the past. Obviously not just to create double work for people, but to also just learn um, how, as our brand has evolved and grown up and matured, how are people responding to it differently? And also we're expanding our audiences a lot. So beyond just the people who are coming, you know, who see us on Facebook, who are coming to the site from that. Now we've got people coming to the site from many different um, avenues and they might feel very differently about the, you know, our messaging and our product than, than the customers that are coming from Facebook or the customers that are coming from any particular uh, influencer or whatnot. So knowing that your audience is constantly changing as well as just your brand as a whole, you know, I certainly don't, we're the same brand that we were, but we might not need certain, you know, social proofs or certain, certain messaging to really describe who we are today because we have a little bit more brand awareness in the, in the community. Yeah. I think that's a great point about the importance of going back in AB testing, just going back and rethinking if you should continue doing something or not, because what gets you to, what got you to the current level might be a detriment to get you to the next level because these order notification pop-ups that you're seeing makes a lot of sense early on. But then once you get yourself established, you know, you see these big beauty brands, their site definitely doesn't have that kind of stuff on it. And if you want to be seen on that same tier, you have to kind of represent yourself in that same way. So I think that's a great reason why you want to go back and reevaluate whether you want to continue sticking with a winner or, or maybe you need to, 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 to uh, maybe a loser, or I guess an an AB test, the, alternative is a better option this time around. That makes a ton of sense. Now, one thing you mentioned to to me in, I think in the email as well, was about how one of the keys to the success early on was to get access to early adopters. Uh, you mentioned that most people need to hear about brands from multiple sources, which we covered, including their friends before they take the plunge to purchase. But then there are early adopters that want to try something new, are bold and, and, and are excited to try something new and be one of the first people to try something new. And those are your first customers and are your most loyal customers today. So talk to us about this. How did you come to that? That realization that that's where the focus should be on is those early adopters. I think that, I think first of all, I mean, you being a brand new company, you have to assume that just, you know, even just look, you know, look around to your five closest friends and you'll probably see that maybe one or a few of them are someone who's going to jump in and try a new product. And they're the ones who are actually going to come back and say, you guys got to try this. It's amazing. Whether it be a product or an experience or a restaurant or whatever it is. And I think we can all kind of relate to that idea that either, you know, it might be you in your group of friends, or it might be someone else that, you know, you always have someone who's kind of talking about the latest and greatest. And I think the same goes for kind of, uh, the audience of who's actually purchasing your products. I know for, you know, for example, that, you know, it, for me, I'm probably not going to go out and buy a brand new product unless I've heard from, you know, maybe I trust my sister the most. And I think she has the best beauty products. So she's going to come to me and say, have you tried this? You need to try it, you know, and and then I'm going to actually go try it. Whereas a lot of, you know, some people are actually going to walk into a store or just go online kind of searching for these new products. And that's why, you know, the YouTube, um, 
beauty bloggers are so popular because they're people just looking for new products to try and to tell their friends and family about. So what we found was that, you know, early on when we were getting a bunch of sales and we were getting really excited by this influx, um, what we, what we found was that a lot of these people were then going out and sharing our, our social media and our advertisements. And they were talking about us on Twitter and they were kind of joining this, this groundswell and they were doing a lot of the work organically for us because they were telling all of their friends and family about this product that, you know, that we didn't really have to go and acquire their friends. They were, they were doing it for us. So that was really amazing. And then what we realized was that, you know, these are the people that even today, or I mean, we haven't launched that long, but still today are coming back and saying, I've been buying this product for nine months, you know, since their beginning, since, since the very, you know, they're, and they were in our first hundred purchasers and they're still coming back and they're still talking about it because everybody wants to be the cool friend who found the cool new product. Um, or at least I shouldn't say everybody, but this, you know, this personality type definitely does. And we're learning that those, you know, those people who, who really seek out that, that new latest and greatest product are the ones that are going to become the most loyal because they want, they feel like they're a part of your brand and your story. And they are a part of your brand and your story. You speak to them on the phone. You, we reach out to a lot of our top customers, um, or at least even our early customers and just ask them questions. You know, what do you think of the product? How is the packaging working for you? Do you like the smell? You know, just really getting their feedback. And then they become really invested in your brand and they, and they feel like they're a part of it because they are, and they're so important to, to each company as, as you're so small and you're able to really do that and reach out and talk to people on a one-to-one level, uh, they, those people become your most loyal customers. I think, I think for life. Mm. So now does your marketing change when you move from going after early adopters to, I guess the, the masses? That's an excellent question. I think that, uh, yes and no. Uh, I think that the, just in the same way that different audiences want, you know, they're going to need, they're going to need different proof that your product is legitimate. Uh, so I think that for, you know, for those early adopters, they want to see what makes your product different, what makes your product unique, what makes your product, you know, stand out of a crowd. Uh, how does your product make you feel, et cetera. Whereas um, as you move maybe um, further away from those people who are willing to try this new product, they want to see that social proof. So maybe they want to see those order notifications, or maybe they want to see um, a, you know, a quote from a customer in your advertising, or maybe they, they're really focused and they want to read through the customer reviews on your website. So I do think there's a little bit of shift in messaging. Um, however, you still want to stay true to your brand and not, and not totally change based on that. Now, and is there a way to actively seek out these early adopters or did they just, I guess, organically are the first ones to be attracted to your, your new brand? I think there's a, it's a little bit of both. I definitely think that it's sort of just an organic attraction because they're the ones who are going to try it first. Um, however, you can definitely uh, go out and really look for people. I think by kind of, you know, browsing around the internet and going to popular blogs and going to popular YouTubes, you can kind of see who's, who's talking and who's, and who's jumping in and saying, Oh, I want to try that. Or, Oh, I want to try this. And I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to really, you know, kind of scour and, and reach out to people that way. Certainly a very manual process, but I think it would be worth it because I think those are the people who are, who are going to be the early adopters and are, who are going to try a product that might not have the, the brand awareness of, of other products. And then of course there's more, um, you know, scientific ways to do it, which would be to kind of, uh, build out some lookalike audiences and different um, advertising channels to really see if you can find common themes between these early adopters and and expand your reach of them. 
Awesome. So KapariBeauty.com is a website, K-O-P-A-R-I-B-E-A-U-T-Y.com. What are the plans for, for the next year? Where do you want to see the, the brand uh, go to in the next year? So we just recently launched in all um, Sephora stores, which is really exciting for a brand of our age. We're, we're very, very young to be to be lucky enough to have the opportunity to launch in all of these stores. So that just happened um, about a couple weeks ago. So we're really focused on, you know, not only our digital channel and, and getting people to try the product, but um, for the people who aren't necessarily going to want to try a beauty product by ordering it online first, uh, we're really hoping that these, this outlet in Sephora is able to um, give them the chance to walk into the store and to grab a tester and try the product, smell the product, feel the product, um, and, and really expand our reach. I think our, you know, our number one goal for 2017 is definitely to raise our brand awareness and to just gain credibility, uh, with, with the women in the beauty community. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Megan. Thank you, Felix. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify masters episode. Now they're selling 400, $500 orders at a bakery in a grocery store. Those are numbers they never saw before, and that's on one order. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.